Esther chapter 4, so I invite you to turn there just to recap real quick what's happening in the book of Esther. Um, yes. Oh, let's send the kids downstairs. Let's do that. That would be good. Sorry, Bob distracted me. I'm going to blame him. Oh, it was Bob's fault. No, anyway. Um, but uh, let's. we're going to be in the book of Esther chapter 4, and uh, let's, let's, re, let's recap real quick what's happened. Uh, Esther opens with the glory and grandeur of the king of Persia, the Achaemenid uh, king, who in Esther is called Ahasuerus, um, uh, but uh, we know him in history as Xerxes I. Um, and he throws a great festival to honor his own glory and his own power. And his wife refuses to come down and be counted as just basically uh, chattel uh, for his glory. And so um, he decides to find a new queen. Um, he leads this. Uh, he has representatives spread throughout the kingdom. They bring all the most beautiful girls there. Among them is a young Jew uh, woman named Hadassah, uh, probably a teenager, uh, who has uh, a name. The Jews have two names um, in this society. And her her Babylonian name or her Persian name is uh, Esther or Ishtar, um, and uh, and she has an uncle or cousin. He's actually her cousin um, named Mordecai, um, and Mordecai is the one who's raised her. She's come out of the tragedy of the loss of her parents, however that happened, and she is selected to be the queen. And then in chapter three, um, we saw two different things happening. First, we saw Mordecai serving in the king's court um, in, the, in the gates of the king um, as probably a member of the king's intelligence gathering uh, organization, that what they called the king's eye. And he hears about a plot to uh, kill the king. He reports that to Esther. Esther reports it to the king. They find the conspirators and they punish them. They execute them in a, a brutal Persian way. And then the second half of chapter 3, we saw Haman, uh, the Agagite, who uh, is offended because Mordecai doesn't bow to him. And I mentioned that it, he probably doesn't bow because Mordecai suspects that Haman was involved in that plot, that conspiracy. And Haman decides that he will deal with Mordecai by uh, conducting a pogrom, a holocaust, and wipe out all the Jews in the Persian Empire. He goes to the king, he persuades the king to give him power to execute this, and all of this happens during the feast of Passover, and so Mordecai and all the other Jews that would have advised against this are not there. They're, they're off um, celebrating their feast. And so we open with Esther chapter 4 with Mordecai finding out, finishing up the feast and coming back to his place. And when he comes back to his place, he finds out um, that basically in 11 months, um, the Jews throughout the empire are going to be gathered up and executed. When Mordecai, in chapter 4 and verse 1, learned that all had been done, all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there were, was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. And when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, 
The queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. And Hathak went out to Mordecai and in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay, uh, literally had weighed out, that's the Hebrew text, um, had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. And Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Shusha for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who's know, who knows whether you have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Shusha. Put a fa- hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night, three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Uh, the author of Esther, and we don't know who wrote Esther, echoes um, a statement made by the prophet Amos. Um, Amos uh, ministered about 400 years before um, Esther. And, es- and Amos said, um, I will turn your feast into mourning, your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. Um, The the practice in this society um, when you were mourning, when you were grieving, when you were repenting was to uh, take off whatever robes you were wearing, to cover yourself in sackcloth, which is basically burlap, um, and to shave your head and in the place of your hair to spread the ashes of a fire. Um, coal after they had cooled um, and smear them on your head so that people would know that you were in mourning. And usually you did this because you had sinned. You had done something that you needed to repent of. Usually you did this because you were going through God's judgment and so you were turning your attention um, to him. You were repenting. But Mordecai does this for a different reason. He goes on strike. It's really what he does. Mordecai is a part of the king's empire. He's a part of the bureaucracy. His job um, is to sit in the king's gate. So what does he do? He disqualifies himself from sitting in the king's gate so that everyone will notice. 
Uh, Mordecai's job seems to be to not draw attention to himself. And he's very, very good at that. He's so good at it that when he saves the king, the king in chapter 3, the king forgets to give him the honors that are due to him for what he did. Mordecai is not doing his job. He's drawing attention to himself. He is allowing the wheels of government around him to grind to a halt to call attention to the Holocaust that was about to begin if someone did not speak up. Now Mordecai himself, he has no power to stop this. He has, he has no control over the situation. He's not in the chain of command. Um, he, he is not involved in this. He can't even go and protest to the king. His only avenue is to draw attention to it. And so that's what he does. Because if Haman is able to fulfill this, this mission of his to get rid of the Jews, if this happens, then any power that Haman has, anything that has happened with Esther, it becomes completely and utterly meaningless. And so he goes right from the feast of Passover and the celebration, celebration of the salvation of God to the people of Israel in Egypt. He goes right into mourning. No bridge, no gap, just right into it. And as we read the exchange between him and Esther, and, and this, this exchange is very reflective of the realities of the Persian court, the way that things worked. Um, the eunuchs, um, the, the, scripture, the scriptures describe the king's eunuchs, those were the queen's bodyguards. Now, when we, when we read about eunuchs, and I'm not going to get into all of it, you can ask your mom and dad what that is, um, but uh, what we read about them in history, they're generally treated as very kind of being weak and, and kind of high-pitched and treacherous and treasonous, but in the Persian Empire, uh, the eunuchs were actually well-renowned as a bodyguard, and they chose um, to have their bodies mutilated, many of them, to, um, to show their loyalty to the king. And so Esther is surrounded by her young women and her bodyguards, and she is sending things out to Mordecai. They're having this conversation because Mordecai is not allowed into the house of women. Um, what in, in the English Standard Version is translated as harem, but that's not really um, the right word for this. Um, this place where Esther lives, um, and I've mentioned before, the queen of Persia, um, she was kind of the head of the, um, the informal intelligence agency. Um, all the women and daughters and people spread throughout the capital, spread throughout the empire, and she was very involved in leading the empire. So she, she's aware of the situation, I'm sure, but it's Mordecai's... Uh, strike. It's Mordecai's mourning that she wants to fix. And so she tries to get him to put some clothes on. She says, be quiet. Don't do this. Mordecai refuses to do so. And finally, we have this conversation at the end. Um, and I want to kind of focus on that. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 25, the apostle Paul says that the world removed from Christ, removed from the creator God, will turn the truth into a lie. They will turn the world upside down. And without getting into too many details, we can look at the world that we live in and recognize that our world, whenever given an opportunity, the world that does not submit to the authority of our Creator God likes to invert the priorities of the world. They like to take what God created and turn it upside down. 
to turn the truth into the lie, a lie into the truth. Justice becomes injustice, and injustice becomes justice. Democracy becomes rule by a, a small vocal minority. The rule of law becomes rule by a corrupt bureaucracy. Uh, the teachings of Scripture are manipulated to say what they do not say. And society in general is upside down. And Mordecai faces a world system where the injustice, a holocaust, an unwarranted massacre of the Jewish people in the Persian Empire is being called the will of God. And so Mordecai has to face down an intimidating injustice in his society. And I think if we're honest and we look around in our world, we recognize that that is far more common than it needs to be in our thinking. So I want to talk about how Mordecai faces that down. And I have four points. It's because I'm wearing a dress. So I have four points and one big idea. The first thing that Mordecai does when we read this text is he is not afraid to draw attention to the crisis of his age. He is not afraid to call what is going on wrong. He's not afraid to disqualify himself from his job, which probably provided him and his niece or uh, cousin uh, Hadassah with a comfortable living. He's not afraid to not go to work. He's not afraid to not go into the king's gate. He's not afraid to put on sackcloth and ashes to draw attention to the imbalance and the injustice of what the world is calling balanced and just. And we live in a society that says, don't draw attention to things that might be um, a little odd. That we're supposed to pretend like absurdity is normal. What a surprise that an individual born a man who identified as a woman won a competition against women. And yet, if you were to say, well, that's because men tend to be stronger and faster than women. Not all men are stronger and faster than all women. But there's a tendency, there's a reason that we have gendered competition. It's because bodies are different. I don't think I'm telling you anything that's unusual. And yet we're told, don't make a big deal about it. Treat them as if this is the way that it is. Whatever they choose to be, that is who we have to treat them as. Well, I can choose to identify as a billionaire. I'm still not one. I can choose to identify as an owner of a Mercedes-Benz, but I still have a Kia. I can choose to identify as whatever I want. But that doesn't change the reality. But when you draw attention to that, as Mordecai does, when Mordecai draws attention to the injustice and the brokenness of the system that he is living in, he has a plan. Now here's the deal. 
Our, we live in a society of activists. Everybody wants to be an activist. Now, what they mean by being an activist is usually posting a TikTok video. But, um, but everybody wants to stand for something. Everyone wants to, to raise their voice. Everybody wants to say, I support fill in the blank, whatever it is. It's, it's how you get noticed. It's how you get attention. Everybody wants to do that. But Mordecai, um, when he steps in and he draws attention to the situation, I want you to understand some things about him. This is this, the first thing is he's not afraid to draw attention. But the second thing is before he did that, he gathered the facts and was prepared to defend them. See, the problem with most people's activism is that they want to fight and argue and debate, but they don't want to deal with the facts. They don't want to deal with the evidence that both supports and doesn't support their position. See, for the most part, and I'm not picking on I, I am picking on it. I'm just going to go ahead and pick on it. For the most part, people, when they rise up and they say, I'm supporting such and such, they have no idea what they're supporting. When, when, the, when I almost called it the Soviet Union. Might as well call it the Soviet Union. Um, when, when Russia invaded the Ukraine, everybody went, we're going to defend the Ukraine, the freedom of the Ukraine, da, 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 da. But whenever I, who know a little bit about the situation, would say, well, why is it wrong for Russia to invade Ukraine? And what was Russia's justification for invading the Ukraine? We have to remember that the Ukraine, for a long time, was part of Russia. There's more to the situation than just, well, it seems wrong because the newscaster said it was wrong, so... We have to gather the facts. We have to be ready to defend our position. When Mordecai is confronted by Esther's, Esther's uh, uh, um, uh, unit comes out to talk to him, Mordecai says to him, this is what happened. Here's a copy of the document. Here's the exact amount of money that Haman has bribed the king with in order to make this happen. He has all of his facts and he lays them out in front of a person who might actually have the power to do something about it. Oh, well, I'm angry at this. I'm going to post on Facebook. Haman, uh, sorry, Mordecai, he gets into the situation. He's ready to go. And he doesn't start protesting until he has all the evidence. The third thing. Mordecai understands in his conversation with Esther, he understands the price of both ignoring the situation and confronting the situation. In Luke chapter 14, the, uh, Jesus says, who begins building a tower without first counting the cost? He says, who jumps into a, a war without making sure you have enough troops to handle the situation? And, and he's speaking in the context of following him as a disciple. He said, you make sure you understand what you're doing here. The choice you're making, there is a price, there are consequences to standing up against injustice. There are, there are consequences. There, are, there is a price for confronting the injustice of this world. And so many people want to confront an injustice, they want to argue about something, they want to get into a debate, but they're not willing to be challenged and confronted themselves. How many times does somebody say something and, and you give them an, a, a response that maybe is uh, a little contrary to their position and they go, well, I don't want to debate it. 
Well, then why would you say it? If you want to throw out some kind of hot take on something, you better be ready to defend it. It's the reason I don't listen to sports radio anymore. All they ever do is say controversial things and then yell at people and hang up on them if they disagree. Aaron Rodgers is the greatest quarterback to ever play the game. How many Super Bowls? I don't think so. Well, you can't say Tom Brady. Why not? He won seven. Six? Seven. How many did he win? Too many. But he did. All right? I mean, the the fact that when you lay out the facts, well, I'm not here to debate who's better or not, then stop saying who's better or not. And and as Christians, as people that follow the, the way of Christ... We have to understand that there is a price. There are consequences to our standing against the injustice of this world. There are consequences to us being like Mordecai and calling a situation what it is. Calling injustice injustice when the rest of the world is calling it justice. He understood the price. The fourth thing I want to bring up And this is so hard. His actions are based on the reality, not on his rage or his reactions. Uh, When when we started drafting the the, uh, statement of faith at Bedford Road, when we had brought together two congregations, for the most part, doctrinally, the statements of faith were, were pretty much on the line. But one of the things that has happened over the course of centuries is that statements of faith have stopped being about what you believe and they've often described, they often describe everything you don't believe. We are not this. We are opposed to that. We do not agree to this. We do not agree to that. And one of the things that I challenged the elders at the time um, we had a retreat. We went up to Camp Berea. We spent a night because we couldn't afford to spend any more than that. Um, and we got together and we talked about, I said, when we put this statement of faith together, let's, let's not sit and defend, let's not attack every position we disagree with. Let's just say what we believe. It's going to be a lot shorter. It's got to be a lot more direct. It's going to be a lot clearer. Because when our actions are motivated on reaction or we're upset with a situation, we are not going to act rationally and more importantly, we are not going to take a a broad view of the situation, we're going to deal with that immediate situation, that immediate moment. How many of you, your kids have ever done something that really upset you and you punished them and then realized after you had done that, I have just set a really bizarre precedent. I have put, set myself up for failure in the future because as soon as the kid figures out the loophole in what I just did, um, we are going to be uh, in trouble. Um, and that used to happen to me all the time. I don't know if you know this, but uh, as a kid, I was a little hard to manage. Um, and uh, and so my my father would say something, and my father very rarely like directly punished me. Um, but every once in a while, he would say um, he would want to take away a privilege. Now I didn't have iPads and phones and all those things. And one of the things I really really loved to do, um, two things I really loved to read. Um, that comes as a surprise. Um, but I really love to play in the woods. Um, I played army with my friends. Uh, we had we would run around in camouflage 
and shoot at each other with fake guns. Now, I know that that's offensive to a lot of people. We didn't know. I apologize. We were just having fun. Um, and we made some pretty accurate uh, firearm uh, replicas. In fact, when I moved to Massachusetts, uh, I made the mistake of drawing Tom and his brother Bob into this, and we had some police officers speak to us about the reality of the weapons I had brought with me. But um, anyway, um, they weren't real, but they were there. Uh, but anyway... Uh, so my father would try to take those things away. And, it, you know, you can't, you say to somebody, you say, well, um, all right, you misbehaved. Your punishment is um, you're not going to be able to read in your room. You don't say that to me because my room had windows. And so I put my books outside of my room, opened my window, put a chair where are you going? I'm going to my room. I didn't mention that I was just going through my room. And I would go outside of my room and sit there and play. Same thing with video games. You can't play video games this afternoon. This afternoon? When, when does afternoon end? You know, I can play video games at like, say, 4.30. When mom starts prepping dinner, afternoon is over, right? And we all have those situations. Or um, you're angry and you, you know, I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, don't exaggerate. Right? We make our decisions based on rage. We, we're reactionary. But Mordecai takes a thoughtful stop and he deals with the situation based on reality. He knows what, it co- what it's going to cost Esther, if she stands with him, but he also knows if we don't do something, we're all going to die. Now, he says God will raise salvation from another place, but in the meantime, we're going to be dead. So shouldn't it be better that we take a choice? We're dead anyway, he says to Esther. You know, if you go into the king's inner court, and I'm not going to go into the details of this, so there was a reason, and there was actually precedent for this. Uh, there was a guy who went into the Darius's inner sanctum, the Xerxes' father, went into his sanctum thinking that he had earned that privilege, and Darius had him executed on the spot. So Esther is right to say, he can kill me if I do this. But Mordecai knows this is the reality. We are dead if we don't, so we might as well stand against injustice. Once we count the cost of the choices that we have to make as followers of Christ, we should be willing to act on the realities of who we are, regardless what the world will do to us. When you are facing injustice, you cannot be afraid to draw attention. You, you have to gather facts, you have to understand the price, and you have to act on reality. Now, I've talked so much about this on the outside. I want to talk about this internally, in ourselves. Because injustice is an imbalance. It's something that's not right. It's a hypocrisy. It's a, I believe one thing, but I do another thing. That's just as unjust. That's just as imbalanced. Maybe not on the same scale as a Holocaust, but it's still out of balance. And if it's important that we maintain balance and justice in the grand scope of the world, it is important that we maintain balance inside ourselves as well.
But when we are confronted with an imbalance and an injustice, an inconsistency in ourselves, how do we respond? Most of us try not to draw attention to it. A quirk, a flaw. Because sometimes I think we really believe that people's perception of us can be maintained even if they do not represent the realities. I can, I can plaster enough makeup on the situation that no one will notice. I, I, I can, I can, I can, I, I know I've got this struggle, I've got this difficulty, but if we just pretend like it doesn't exist. Uh, my, my father and I were driving home from Virginia. He said to me, he said, it takes the first 10 years for you to realize uh, everything that is wrong with your spouse. It takes the next 10 years for you to realize love's not based on those things. He said, and he goes, I don't understand. Now, my parents have been separated for almost as long as they were together. Not divorced. Divorce is not an option. Murder, maybe, but not divorce. Um, but as we talked about it and we, we talked about I mean, Nicole and I are getting ready to celebrate our 25th anniversary. The first, the first 10 years of our marriage, we didn't even know everything we didn't like about each other. We kept discovering new things. She discovered a lot more things than I did. But then we spent 10 years, the next 10 years, um, learning that love was bigger than the limits of our own perception. That it was about the covenant that we had made. It was not about any of these funky things. And my wife has been through some serious physical problems. Um, everything, I mean, everything you could possibly imagine she's been through. Um, I don't know if you guys remember the, the time that she had cellulitis in her face and we had to, they stuffed her face full of bandages, full of iodine to sterilize it. And she took it out and she's like, oh my goodness, my face, it's destroyed. And you know what the reality was at that point in our marriage, it, it didn't matter anymore to me. I wasn't going to pretend like it didn't exist. We were going to deal with the situation. We were, going to we were going to face it together, but we were going to keep going. Because when there's an imbalance in things, when something is broken, once you build the foundation of the reality, you understand the price of what you're doing, you see the facts, you're acting on the reality, the circumstances may change, but your faithfulness will carry you through. But if you spend your life pretending like there aren't situations... There aren't issues that need to be addressed. There aren't conversations that need to be had. There aren't sins that you need to repent of. There aren't things that I can just, I can push that aside. I don't have to face that. It's not that big of a deal. I'll give it up tomorrow. All of those lists of things, we could go on and on and on about the specifics, but if we don't confront the imbalance and the injustice in ourselves, we won't grow. We, we won't become the men and women that we are supposed to be becoming. We won't become the marriages we're supposed to be. If we don't act on the reality rather than react.
can we all just admit that we can all be a bit of a mess? None of us have it all together, have all the answers, the perfect, perfect Christian. There is imbalance, there is injustice, there is brokenness. And we have to be open about it, draw attention to it. We have to gather the facts. We have to understand the price. And then we have to act on the reality. If we don't, if we don't, what happens when imbalance and injustice are allowed to be treated as if they are normal and the way things are supposed to be. Eventually, things will fall apart. I'll close with this last story. I bought a car back in 2010, 2011, something like that. It was a white Chevy Cobalt hatchback. First car I ever owned that didn't have spark plugs. It just had like this electric panel thing that shot sparks. I was trying to like do maintenance and my friend um, Matt, he, he, I went to open the hood. Actually, it was funny. I opened, went to open the hood to jump it and he says the, the battery's in the trunk. I said, why is the battery in the trunk but the engine under the hood? He said, don't ask, it's Chevy. Okay. Um, I, owned, I bought this car and the car had um, some kind of weird tires on it. I don't know exactly what they were. They were junk, but I bought the car. It was cheap. I was driving down to see my dad um, and uh, there's a spot on 495 right next to the Hood Milk um, uh, factory place, bottling thing, whatever, on 495. And they were working on the bridges. I know they never work on 495, but um, they were working on the bridges and there was a bump, you know, bump ahead. Um, which usually means your car is about to fall into a ditch. I'm driving along and I hit this bump and I, the, the cheap tire did not have some kind of structure to it. I hit that thing, it bent my frame, the tire, the tire didn't go flat, but the frame of the tire, the wheel got bent and I did not have the money to replace it. Do you know what it's like to drive a car where the, the wheel has one flat spot on it? Take your hand off the take your hand off the wheel and the car goes And I'm driving this car around. I don't have the I don't have the money to buy a new wheel. I just bought the car. We're we're you know not poor, but we're not wealthy. And we're dealing with this. And I'm driving around. And you know, I get I get out of the car. My hands would still be doing this as I walk down the street. My left arm was stronger than my right arm because I was constantly holding the car this this side. Eventually, what happened was I had to replace the wheel. But in the process, it affected the entire car because the ball joints were getting jammed and the shocks were being adjusted a thing and the the engine was sideways and eventually it affected the alignment in the in the the alignment in all four wheels of the car and I wound up spending way more money than if I had just replaced the wheel when we don't address the imbalances and the injustice in ourselves and in society because we sit there and we go well it's not that big of a deal we can handle it later you know what's what the inevitable consequence is going to be it's just going to get worse. And eventually it's going to affect the whole system. 
It's going to get worse and worse and worse. And then the correction is going to be painful. It's going to be a lot harder than it would be if when we identify it, we simply address it, gather the facts, understand the price, and act based on the realities of the situation. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, our society is full of imbalance. Sin does that. It makes us unjust. It makes us accept lies as truth. It does that on the big scale and it does it on the small. It does it in us. Lord, help us to be like Mordecai, to draw attention to what is really wrong, both in ourselves and in our society. As couples, to be able to confront the hard realities of our marriages and, and address them. As, as parents and children, um, to, to not ignore, but to address with love and compassion and truth the things that you need to transform in us. Help us to recognize what needs to be done and act according to the reality because our marriages and our parenthood and our families and our, our participation in society, they are meant to draw others to your glory, to see your power and our desire for peacemaking and peacekeeping on our own standards so often just contribute to the imbalance. Help us to see your true balance, your true way, your true justice at every level of our lives, that it might pervade every aspect of who we are as individuals and as a community, and that we might align ourselves with you, do what needs to be done, and be your church. Be your family.